as Pastor Dave comes to teach your word and, and give his insight to the last bit of the Apostles' Creed, Lord, I, I pray that you would give him strength. I pray that the words that he speaks comes from you. And Lord, I pray that we'd be, in, number one, we'd be encouraged. And number two, we'd be challenged to be salt and light into a world of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. morning, we're going to continue to look at the Apostles' Creed. And uh, last week, Pastor Adam talked uh, more specifically about the Holy Spirit, that I believe in the Holy Spirit, and, and really encouraged us to put up our sails and, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us to, to live our everyday lives. And, and as we continue this morning, I want to once again remind us that the Apostles' Creed was written in the 4th century, that it was written as a summary statement uh, to, of, of what uh, the foundations of, of Christianity are, it, um, it, it's, it's called the Apostles' Creed because a lot of the things that are in it were spoken about by the Apostles, not that the Creed itself was written by the Apostles. Um, it's not divinely inspired in, in any way. And again, it was written originally in the Greek language. And we're going to see another word today that, that it's very important that we, that we know that, that we know where it comes from. Um, and, and as I was reviewing the Apostles' Creed, I told everybody at Easter that, um, you know, that we're going to start a new series called the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount next week. Uh, we're not going to start the Sermon on the Mount next week, because when I looked at these last five lines of the Apostles' Creed, which say the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, I thought there is no way I can cover those in one sermon. And I want to. I mean, I want to talk about the communion of the saints, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. What does that mean, and, and how do, are we a part of the communion of saints? And then, as I looked on, it's like the resurrection of the body, us being resurrected to heaven, the life everlasting. Heaven, is it real? What does the Bible say about it? I want, to, I want us to look at that. I'm excited to look at that and to study that along with you. So we're going to do that over the course of the next two weeks. And this morning, we're going to specifically tackle the statement, I believe in the Holy universal church. And what exactly does that mean? Now, uh, as we begin here this morning, I want to find out a little survey. Do we have any Star Trek fans in the crowd? Raise your hand. Be honest. Yep. I, we got a few Star Trek fans. Any Star Wars fans? Raise your Yeah, I knew that was going to be the case. You know, Star Trek is sort of the, you know, the secondary sci-fi to Star Wars. And I, and I get that, but I, I like them both. Um, well, a couple years ago, they came out with the most recent Star Trek movie, Star Trek Eleven. Okay, and um, and I just want to read to you a, a little bit of the synopsis off of the Star Trek website. Okay, here we go. When the crew of the Enterprise is called back home, 
They find that an unstoppable force of terror from within their own organization has detonated the fleet and everything it stands for, leaving our world in a state of crisis. With a personal score to settle, Captain Kirk leads a manhunt to a war zone world to capture a one-man weapon of mass destruction. As our heroes are propelled into an epic chess game of life and death, love will be challenged, friendships will be torn apart, and sacrifices must be made for the only family Kirk has left, his crew. All right, so, anybody see the movie? What was the name of the movie? Wow, we have a lot of Star Trek fans in here. Into Darkness. Okay, that was the, the title of the movie. Into Darkness. Now, the plot of that movie sounds echoingly familiar, doesn't it? Uh, a, a seemingly unstoppable force has entered Earth and created a crisis. Unless help arrives from outside, all will be lost. A savior gathers a crew and goes into the vortex of a war zone to take on an evil enemy. It's an epic uh, chess game of life and death. Love will be challenged. Friendships will be torn apart. Sacrifices must be made. All in hopes of what? Saving planet Earth from the darkness and redeeming humankind for all eternity. Or at least until Star Trek twelve. Right? Okay? Now, love... Uh, look at this statement up here. Um, lo, it's, an epic, it's an epic chess game of life and death. You know, why is that storyline so popular? Why is that storyline so lucrative? It, it, it's because that's our story. That, that's the story of life and, and of humanity. Look at these phrases, epic chess game of life and death. Some of you know all about that chess game. Maybe you uh, lost someone here recently that, was, that you were very close to. Or maybe uh, you know of someone or you yourself are, are going to be having a life-threatening surgery in the, in the next week or two. Um, you have an aging parent and the word hospice just recently became a part of the conversation this week. Love will be challenged. Someone has wronged you. And, and you don't want justice. You want revenge. You, you want them to feel the hurt and, and the anger that you felt from whatever it was that they did to you. Maybe your marriage hit the wall again. And, and your love is hanging by a thread. Friendships will be torn apart. And, and a so-called friend stabbed you in the back. You feel wounded, angry, even a little bit how dare they do that? I can't believe that my friend would ever do that, but they did. And maybe just a few here this morning have so much darkness shrouding them that you're wondering if you should just end it all. Just give in to the darkness. Well, you know what? Jesus is well aware of the darkness that we experience on an everyday basis. Jesus walked this earth. He experienced that. And this is what Jesus had to say about it. In John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in what? Darkness. Darkness means confusion and discouragement, decay and stress. And Jesus has good news for us. Say this next verse out loud with me. Let's, let's say it together. John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Isn't that great news? 
the light of life. Jesus Christ is the light of life. It's hopeful news. It's a message that our world needs to hear. There's so much darkness out there, isn't there? So how are people going to hear about Jesus being the light of the world? How, wh- where is this good news going to come from? What tool has God created to bring his message to the world? What is it? Anybody know? It's the church. It's the church. Uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Again, it's going to be up here on the screen. And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking to Peter, one of the twelve disciples, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church, Jesus says. Now, the church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. It's not sheetrock and carpet. The church is people. It doesn't matter if it's three people together under a tree in the middle of the jungle in South America. If they're gathering to to worship, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is a church. It it, it doesn't matter if it's a a 200-year-old church in the middle of Ukraine or Yugoslavia. It doesn't matter if it's a group of ordinary folks in Lingle, Wyoming, gathering together. We are the church. You are the church. And the church was God's idea. It's God's instrument in the world to bring his message of hope and forgiveness to people. And I, as I've thought about it these last couple weeks, I am extremely hopeful for the church. I am extremely excited about the church. I am amazed at what God is doing through the church. And I'm extremely hopeful for what he is going to do through the church. Through the church in general, you know, across the entire planet, and specifically for our church, for, for North Hills. I, I see a very bright future in the coming years for North Hills. God is working. He is aligning. He is moving pieces. And here's the exciting thing. We get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of it. Now, um, four points about the, the statement in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Universal Church. That's what it says. The Holy Universal Church. Uh, the first truth about this statement is this. The church is one. The church is one. The, the church in the Apostles' Creed is singular for a reason. It doesn't say the Holy Universal Church is. The church is based and founded on Jesus Christ as the foundation. There is no other foundation. That is the bottom line. And as far as churches all over the world go, regardless of denomination, to the extent that they are genuinely Christian, we are all a part of one church. We are one body. Paul talks about it multiple times. Now, I... I've had people ask me in the past, it's usually on an airplane or sitting at a bus stop, you know, where I'm going somewhere, traveling somewhere, and, and we'll get to talking a little bit, and, you know, some, some personal information will leak out, and they'll kind of find out that I'm a Christian, and they'll say, so what religion are you? And my response to that is always, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. And they always stop there, and they say, no, no, that, that's not what I meant. I meant, what church do you go to? You know, but what church I go to is secondary to the foundation that I am a Christ follower, that that I am a Christian. 
As long as it is a body of people that believe Jesus is the Messiah and Lord and they're seeking to faithfully follow God's word as their rule of life. The church is one. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6 say this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The church is one. And the church is holy. The church is holy. Now, this can be a difficult subject for us in our world today because, you know, people, people call people things like holier than thou's and goody two-shoes and those kinds of things when you even mention the word holy or the word saint. And again, we're going to talk about this more in depth next week. We're going to really focus on it. But we need to understand this aspect of the church. Think about um, 1 John 1, 9. I think it's 1 John 1, 9, where it says that if you confess, uh, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, right? And cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. Not just a little bit. Not some, but it says all unrighteousness. And as I think about somebody that's been forgiven of all of their unrighteousness, that makes me think that they're probably holy. Now, what does that mean for us as a church to be called holy, to be called saints? We're going to look at that next week. Okay? So the church is one, the church is holy, and the church is Catholic. All right? Now, first service, I got quite a few heads come up because they were reading, and when I said Catholic, okay? Now listen. Um, We need to understand the Apostles' Creed and what it intends. And as I said from the very beginning, um, some of the, the feelings that you get when you read that are because of some assumptions that you've made. And maybe some assumptions that others have made as well. I don't know. But the term, as far as it goes in the Apostles' Creed, does not require refer to the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, it was written in the 4th century. It was written in Greek, and the Greek word uh, that's translated Catholic there, little c, is Catholicos. Okay, Catholicos. And what Catholicos means is according to the whole, or universal. So the creed that, that, you, that you have maybe read before, there's a couple versions out there, um, it might say that the, the holy universal church, okay, which also can be confused in our current culture with universalist, right? So it's, it's like we really need to have a good understanding of, of what the Apostles' Creed intends, okay? Now, if I were to say that my wife, Sarah, had a Catholic taste in music, okay, we just don't use that word today, Um, So that would seem strange to you if I said that. But if I said that my wife had a Catholic taste in music, what I would mean by that is that my wife has a a taste in universally as it comes to music. She likes music from all of the genres and and from all of the decades that have come before. Okay, it's it's universal. It 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 applies to, to all. So by saying that the church is Catholic. We are affirming that the message of the church is valid and relevant to every age and every situation. It's not like there's one church with a message for a certain century and another church for a message for another century and somehow that message changes. No, it's one church and it's one message 
applied, doesn't matter what time or what age we're in or, or what the state of the world is. Um, it, it's the same church throughout the ages, across timelines, um, that seeks to apply the same gospel and God's word to any situation that we come across. Okay? The church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic or universal, and the church is apostolic. The church is apostolic. As the church, we continue steadfastly in the faith and teaching of the first apostles. That's what I mean by apostolic. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We gladly accept the great commission that was entrusted to the disciples on the day that Christ ascended into heaven. Before Jesus left, he said, Go, make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey my commands. That's what Jesus commissioned to the disciples and they in turn have commissioned to us. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints as the current residents of the earth of this nation, of this state, of this county, of whatever town or community you are in, we have been entrusted by God with the mission. And when we pass on, when we're gone from this place, those children that you're holding and those uh, who come after us will be the ones until Christ returns who carry on the message of hope to the world. We are stewards of the same gospel given to the apostles over 2,000 years ago. It's the same message, and it's a message of hope and a message of life that, that wars against the destruction and darkness of this world. Now, formally speaking, those last four points, um, I could summarize them by saying this. Those, uh, the marks of the church, okay, the marks of the church point to a worldwide body of believers whose soul foundation is Jesus Christ who have been entrusted with the apostles faith and responsibilities to proclaim the gospel throughout history knowing that it is of continued vital relevance to the human race even today let me just repeat that one more time Um, we are a part of a worldwide body of believers whose sole foundation is Jesus Christ who have been entrusted with the apostles faith and responsibilities to proclaim the gospel throughout history knowing that it is of continued vital relevance to the human race now how how does that describe us what 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 is life going to be like for you and me this week as as we think about those four points of the church I want to move on to the second point this morning and that's this I believe that the church is the hope of the world The church is the hope of the world. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to sit for the rest of the message. Matthew chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anybody else warm? Roy, could you maybe stir the air a little, please? Because I'm roasting up here. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. There are two you are statements in there. Talking about you, talking about me, talking about us as the church. All believers across the planet together. You are the church. And as the church, the first you are statement says that you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, salt is one of those things that is pretty common to us, isn't it? Um, it's, it's important to our nation. Um, do you know, actually, I think that if, if, uh, if restaurants were to only be allowed to pick one condiment, um, some of you might say ketchup, I think it, was, it would probably be salt. I think they would pick this. Now, do you know, what is, the, what is salt most commonly used for in the United States? Who can tell me? Say it loud. Roads. Yeah, I heard roads. That's it. 51% of the salt used in America is used on our roads. Okay? 5% table salt. Only 5%. So, you know, to us, we see salt every day. It's not that big a deal, right? Um, not that important. Some of you don't even use salt, actually. Um, you're on maybe a, a health kick and, and you are on a low sodium diet or, or maybe it's just, you know, you use a salt substitute diet. Now, I'm from a Swedish family and we always avoid salt because it might add a little flavor to the food that we eat. <laughs> um, in Jesus' day, there were two qualities of salt that we have to get a handle on to understand this passage. Okay, the first one is this, that salt preserves salt preserves. You see, they didn't have refrigeration. Uh, people discovered that there was something about salt that stopped decay. It, it stopped corruption. And so it was almost like magic. They, they found that if they used salt, they could preserve food for a long period of time, say, to help them get through a famine. And, and so in a sense, um, salt literally contributed to the outcome of life or death for people. Now, most, I didn't know this until I studied this this week, most of the ancient cities in Italy, including Rome, were founded on salt works. Romans used it to pay soldiers, which is where the statement, he's worth his salt, comes from. They paid people, their salary. If you know anything about Latin, you know that the word salt um, comes from the Latin word sal, and the, and the other word that comes from that Latin word sal is salary. Salt was extremely important. In Salt, A World History, a book that was actually on the New York Times bestseller list, Mark Kurlansky writes, In the ancient world, salt was one of the most common factors that provoked and financed wars. Had no idea salt was so important. In fact, people went to war over salt. In fact, that's why we say when one country is attacked, that's when we say they were assaulted. No, not really. I was just... That's not where that word came from, um, just so you know. But, but you see, we can't understand what Jesus is really saying unless we understand that in the ancient world, salt was prized. 
it was prized. Plato said that salt was dear to the gods. Homer said that it was a divine substance. It was valuable stuff. It was currency. Empires were built around it. And Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, this motley crew of men, he says that God's plan to save the world from decay and corruption and darkness, to purify it and bring out whatever flavor and zest it's going to have, is you. And you are to be salt. You are the salt of the earth. What an encouraging thing to think of ourselves as salt of the earth. Because, see, the world needs salt. Because left to its own, it's just going to decay. And it's going to rot. And it's going to go bad. That's the trajectory of nature. Rocks, over time, they don't stay rocks. They become sand. Uh, Our bodies, if we didn't intentionally exercise and eat healthy, what happens to our bodies? They break down. Relationships, if, if we never tend to our relationships or our marriages, what happens to them? If we never intentionally work at getting along and working through things, what happens? They, they break down. Emotionally, no one is naturally healthy, or uh, no one is naturally happy. Our tendency is towards despair and anxiety and depression. Science. Science knows that eventually our sun's going to burn out if given enough time. And life on this planet will cease if that happens. People who don't believe in God have to realize that if, if, if there is no supernature, if there's no supernatural, that the entire human experience is just a short episode between two oblivions. No basis for beauty, for right and wrong, for love. We're just fluke biological reactions. When you die, you rot. And when the universe ceases to exist, no one will care to remember. Without God to bring salt and light into the world, life has no ultimate meaning. But there is hope, because He did. And we are God's instruments to proclaim that hope. God has raised up our church and our body of believers to be salt. The church is the hope of the world. And as it remains faithful to God, it will continue to preserve and proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ until all of life ends or Jesus returns. Our world needs salt, and salt brings hope. Jesus says that you are the salt that the world needs, but not just as a preservative. Um, Salt also seasons. Salt brings out the natural flavors and otherwise would remain dull and undiscovered. Things taste better with salt, right? There's more joy in the world with salt. But there's the sobering thing about salt. In order to do this, in order to bring out the taste of other foods, salt has to give up itself. I mean, have you ever been over to to eat at somebody's house and you get done with the meal and you turn to your wife and, and you're like, hey, honey, you've got to find out what kind of salt they use. We need to get that salt. It was amazing. Have you ever thought that? No. You, you never have. Why? Because, because salt doesn't exist in and of itself for itself. It, it, it exists to bring out and enhance the flavors of the other parts. Salt's purpose is to lose itself in something more glorious than itself. That's what fulfills its destiny. 
And when it does that, it brings great joy. I think human beings are just like that. Philip Yancey wrote about a man named Ernest Gordon, maybe you've heard of him, who was a POW during World War II. And he was in this uh, labor camp that was forced to build a railroad through the jungle in Thailand. Horrific, horrific conditions. Um, if, If you've ever heard or seen the movie Bridge Over the River Kwai, that movie was based on this Story. It was based on this prison camp. The, the prisoners had to work in 120 degree heat. Their bodies constantly being stung by insects, ravaged by disease. Their feet were barefoot and they were, they were cut with stones. If a prisoner appeared to be slacking off, a guard would beat him to death in front of all of the other prisoners as a, uh, as a lesson to them. They would decapitate them. If they got sick, they were placed in a shack called the death house where they would just lay down and roast until they died. 80,000 men died building this railroad. 80,000 men. That's 393 corpses for every mile of the railroad. Now, these prisoners themselves lived like animals. The strong would beat the weak for just a few grains of rice The only thing that kept them alive was hate. It was a culture of death and darkness until one day, until one man. A work detail had finished for the day when one of the guards shouted out that one of the shovels were missing. And he commanded them to, you know, come to and and, uh, admit who stole it. And nobody confessed. So he grabbed his rifle and he stuck it to the head of the guy at the very front of the line in order to kill the whole work crew. And at that point, one of the enlisted men stepped forward and he said, I did it. I stole it. And the guard took the butt of his rifle and he smashed his skull and and beat his dead body in front of all of the men. And then that evening, when the tools were inventoried again, the work crew discovered there was no missing shovel. All of the shovels were accounted for. And that night, one of the prisoners remembered a verse from the Bible. It was John chapter 15, verse 13, that says this, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what that man did. He sacrificed his own life for another. And something happened in that camp. Prisoners started to treat the dying with respect. They started giving them funerals, and they started marking their graves with crosses, and people who were strong began to give their food to the people who were weak to help them. Ernest Gordon himself had been paralyzed with fever. He had been laid out in the death house and, and, and some of the guys went and got him and brought him out of the death house and, and cared for him. They, they gave him their food. They cleansed uh, his latrine. They, they massaged his leg muscles. He had not thought about God for a long time. But now he did, and they formed a little church in the camp where people were dying by the thousands, and they formed a little, a little church, and Ernest Gordon became the unofficial pastor of their little church. They planted a garden to grow medicinal plants to help people who were sick. They formed what they called the Jungle University, and they started teaching each other courses on geography and philosophy and science in nine different languages. They created an alternative culture to the culture of death. Jesus had a name for that culture. 
He calls it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. It crops up in the most unlikely places, the kingdom of God. They become so transformed that these men became so transformed that when the liberating armies finally came to free them, that instead of taking revenge on their guards, they treated them with kindness and respect and mercy and forgiveness. And Gordon's own life was turned upside down. And much to his surprise, he ended up becoming a minister. All of this started with a single difference maker. One man. And then it started to spread. Never underestimate the power of a difference maker. Because one difference maker can change the world. And you are the salt of the earth. And you are a difference maker. You, in your life, where you live, can be salt. Preserving and seasoning the lives that are around you. You're it. For a lot of people, you're it. You're the only person in their life who has any idea of what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be a part of a church, a a family of people. And a group of difference makers makes up the church. And that being said, the church is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. You know, we're not just here to hold services. We're not here just to, you know, come at, at, uh, at, at 9, 10.45 and leave somewhere around noon. And, and maybe, you know, there's a prayer group that we go to once a week or a Bible study that we attend. And, and, and um, we're not just here to meet in all of those places and feel safe and comfortable. We don't exist solely in and of us for ourselves, just like salt doesn't. We are to be poured out into the lives of other people. We are here to permeate a dying world in the way that salt permeates food. We're here to bring joy and life into the dark and decaying places. Now Jesus goes on to say in chapter 5 there that salt can lose its saltiness. And when it loses its saltiness, that it's not good for anything. And there's two ways that salt loses its effectiveness. Number one is to stay in the salt shaker. If it's never poured out, if it never gets involved, if it, it never gives of itself, it's ineffective. And the other way that salt can become ineffective is to get corrupted with other elements that you would never put in food. And so that it'd be just thrown out. We all make up the church. And the church is the hope of the world. And we have the message of hope. So, question. Are you a hope giver? Are you a difference maker that brings joy to the situations that you're involved in throughout the course of a day? Or are you more of a bucket of cold water on to the lives of other people? Do you give salt? Do you season Are you allowing sin and corruption in your life to to dilute you to the point where where you have lost your saltiness? Is your heart so wrapped up in what the world values that the effectiveness of your life is minimized? I say, let's, let's become salty. Let's be salt to the earth. Think about your neighborhood or your apartment building or wherever you live. 
Do you try to enhance the relationships of people in your neighborhood, or, or do you just, just go on your own merry way? Do you even know your neighbors? You know, we focused on that a few months ago. You know, do you go to neighborhood parties? Do you throw neighborhood parties? Great idea. Throw a neighborhood party. Get to know your neighbors. Become salt. Add some joy to their life. Season their life. At work, do you show up at work asking the question, Lord, how can I bring out the best of the people that I'm around today? Where is there some decay or darkness that I can help alleviate today, Lord? Show me. I want to be salt. I want to be salt. Maybe there's so much darkness in the place that you work that you can only bring just a little bit of salt into the space just right around you. Bring it. If you only have a little space to to be salt, be salt. You know, it only takes a little salt to make a big difference at home, at work, in conversations throughout the course of the day. How salty is your life? Are you keeping it all in here? Or are you being a difference maker? See, that's what we are. That's what the church is. The church is the hope of the world and salt. And Jesus switches the metaphors right here in the middle of this verse with the other you are phrase. And Jesus says that you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. If, if being salt uh, to the earth made the disciples stagger, um, I'll bet when Jesus said that, that they were going to be light to the entire world, they were shell-shocked. Us? Really? Jesus, how can that be? But think about it. Jesus gave this message to the disciples over 2,000 years ago. And here today, over 2,000 years later, we're standing or sitting in a church in Lingle, Wyoming, in the middle of the United States of America. And what are we doing? Talking about the message that Jesus gave the disciples and said that you're going to be light to the world. And that light has shone all the way to here. And how far can your light shine? What sense of darkness is nearby that the Lord wants you to shine light into? There's two aspects of light that I'm going to point out. One is that the power of the light is greater than the power of the darkness. That's true in science. You know, we have flash lights, not flash darks, right? We turn on the light, not the darkness. When a room is dark, why is it dark? Because there's no light. The absence of light. The darkness will not win. That's what Jesus says. It won't win. Matthew uh, verse 15. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. You can limit the effectiveness of a light by covering it up. But why would we do that? Why would we want to limit the effectiveness of light? But the light of a single flame gives light to everyone in the whole house. You know, our cell phones have flashlights on them, right? Just tiny, itty-bitty light, really not very bright. But if you've ever been in a dark place where there was no light and you turn that on, you can see everything around you, can't you? It's amazing how much light one light can give. That's the power of light. And we are to be lights to the world. But there is a problem with the world. 
Um, it's not that there isn't enough light, I don't think. I think that the problem is, um, well, Jesus says it in John chapter 3, verse 19. He says, light has come into the world. There's light. I am the light. Okay? But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. You see, the problem is that people love the darkness. They don't want the darkness that's in their life to be exposed or they, they kind of enjoy some of the darkness and, and, and some of the bad behavior, if you will, that, that's in their life. And they don't want to give that up. So they just say no to the light in general. No, I don't want it shining in my life because if it does, I'm afraid that it's going to expose some things in my life. There's probably some of us in this room today that, that have some, some darkness, some sin in our life. And if we were to open our heart up and allow Jesus to shine that light in there, he, it would be exposed. Sometimes we'd rather not see those things parts of our character and habits or fears and worries or addictions. Sometimes we'd just rather stay in the darkness. But that's not a good place to be. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, the very power of evil was celebrating. You know, when, when Jesus was dead, and we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus died. He wasn't kind of dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. And when he died, Satan thought he had won. And I'm speculating here, but I would guess that if they thought they had won and they had squelched the light of the world, that they were having a party. And their little party lasted for days. Until on that third day, when one of the demonic messengers came in to the revelry and he said, guess what? He's alive. Don't know how he did it. We thought we had him. We thought we had put out the light of the world. But he's escaped. Death couldn't hold him. And he took the keys. That's why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But he doesn't stop there. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ah, I want the light of life, don't you? As a Christ follower, we have it. There's lots of people that we know that don't. And the darkness in their life is oppressive. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Maybe you've been getting acquainted with Jesus the last few weeks or the last month in your life, or maybe it's been a year. I want to ask you a question. Do you have the light of life? See, we can't light ourselves. Um, light has to come in from the outside. John chapter 12, verse 36 says, Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. You know, maybe, maybe you've been in darkness and here this morning you're thinking, you know what, I'm not sure that I have that light in my life. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. Maybe today's that day. 
Maybe today is the day that you would receive that light in your life. Now, once we have become a child of the light, then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, now you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A.W. Mills was not afraid of darkness. He spent 30 years, 30 years trying of his life, helping a community of people understand that killing each other wasn't God's design for them. 30 years. And when he died in that same community, this is what they wrote on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Wouldn't it be great if people thought that of you and me? When he came into my life, there was no light. It was dark. I didn't know what to do. But when, when, but when so-and-so came into my life and they told me about the love of Jesus for me and the forgiveness that I can have in Him, it came to the point where there was no darkness. Jesus then takes this idea of light one more step. And in, in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. A church built on a hill called North Hills cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others, Jesus said, that, you, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, says, Jesus is saying, if a lamp is good... If a lamp in a room gives light, what would a whole city of lights look like? What would a whole group of people that meet on a Sunday morning in a church who are shining their lights into their community, what would it look like then? Would give light to the whole city. So our light shines brighter when we shine together. Our light shines better when we, brighter when we shine together. All of the pronouns in these verses are plural. You want to maximize your light? Do it together. Do it with someone else. Live life together. We are the church. And in, in, in Jesus Christ, the church is the hope of the world. Salt and light. Now, on August 29, 2005, in the darkness of night, Hurricane Katrina devastated the Gulf Coast. It was one of the deadliest hurricanes in U.S. History's history. 1,833 people died, $81 billion in damages. The storm surge flooded homes as far as 12 miles inland. Hurricane-force winds went in over 150 miles to the land. Now, what could a little church in Lingo, Wyoming do in the aftermath of darkness and destruction and devastation? What could they do? Well, we asked that question. We said, what could we do? Are we going to be salt and light? That was one of the questions. And the answer was absolutely yes. We'll do what we can. And we loaded up a dozen people on a bus, loaded up a semi-truck full of supplies gathered from Goshen County and surrounding areas, and we went to Mississippi. And we stayed there for two weeks and we cut down trees and we scooped mud and we handed out blankets and water and food. Some of you in this room were on that trip. Oh, to be salt and light to a community hundreds of miles away. 
but to be salt and light to our own community. When we were coming back, we, we were talking about the fact that, that, that this was a good thing. God called us to do this and we did this. But there are people in our own backyard who need us to be salt and light. Do you know who those people are? Are you taking action to be salt and light in their life? I think it's an exciting thing. I think it's an encouraging challenge. A couple years ago, we began asking the question, God, maybe you would want us to plant a church in Wyoming somewhere. Where would that be? What, what part could we have in that? And God answered our prayer. God said, you know what, North Hills, there's, there's, there's darkness in Goshen County. There's darkness in Lusk. We, you, I want you as a church to be salt and light to Lusk, Wyoming. And we began talking about what that would look like. And then Ty and Sarah, our, our associate uh, worship pastor, felt the call of God on their life that they would be the ones that would go and plant the church in Lusk. And we are. We're planting a church. In fact, we're sending our best. We're sending our best. You know, some might be bummed that Ty's leaving. And I am. I was. But you know what? That's past. That's past. He's going to be gone. June 1st is, at this point in time, the official day. But what an exciting thing to be salt and light to another community, to be a part of that, to be a part of the, the family of God, the church that is sending them, that are a part of it, that are praying already. That's exciting to me. Because, you know... God doesn't send someone on without sending someone to replace, I don't think. We're in, the, we're in the process of the search. We have names. We have guys that we're interviewing. And I don't know what God's going to do, but I do know that, that out there somewhere is a man, maybe he has a family, maybe he doesn't, who God is, is pointing in our direction. And when he gets here, he's going to become salt and light with us. And we're going to continue to grow. And we're going to continue to reach into our communities. And we're going to continue to build lives and build community. Salt and light. You know, we're adding on this entryway. And you can think of it as just bricks and mortar. But it's, it has a purpose. Over three years ago, the Lord gave us a vision to, to remove some of the barriers around here. Now... Unfortunately, it seems like with all of the mud and stuff out there, we've created a little bit of barrier in the meantime. But when that's finished, it's going to be a tool and an instrument in our hands to, to, to bring guests and, and families that we invite in and, 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 and you know, be hospitable to them, show them, give them coffee and, and you know, room for conversation and all of that. Just, just again, all of that, the handicap lift and, and to remove barriers. Not that, well, I don't know. Have you ever gone into a place and, and immediately your mind is taken to a few things that are out of place and just really old? It, this carpet in here, um, it doesn't shock anybody. It's pretty neutral. Um, but before this carpet, which was put in in the 80s, right, Dick? That carpet that was in here before? It was orange. It was the, it, it was the color of Scott's shirt right there. I mean, everybody look at Scott. No. It was orange. 
an orange carpet in the late 90s and 21st century, I'm sorry, but I just kind of think, hmm, it burns my eyes. No, I... We're just trying to remove those things. And it's, it's exciting. I can't wait. Doing something on the inside to help to reach those on the outside. I've, I've heard stories of a small group right now in, within our church that's been meeting. And they've been asking themselves the question, who do I know? Who do I have in my life right now that doesn't know Jesus Christ? And then they're following that question with, how could I be the one to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them? Salt and light. We are it. We are the church. And the message that we have is the hope of the world. It just is. That's so good. That's so good. You are salt. You are light. Now, let's go make a difference. And when we go, let's go together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. For your incredible mercy to us that, that we would even have the light. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here, Father, who doesn't have the light and they're seeking, Lord, I pray that, that they would ask, write it on a connect card, talk to a friend that invited them, talk to, to a neighbor that, 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 that they know is a Christ follower. And I pray that they would have their, their questions answered and that they would too receive the light. Forgiveness, salvation, preservation from destruction. Thank you that the light is greater than the darkness. That you have overcome. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to overcome this week. And that we would be... That every time we pick up a salt shaker this week, every time we eat a french fry, that we would notice there's salt on there enhancing the flavor. And that we would, that we would ask you to use us in the lives of other people to, to bring joy and life. Oh, Lord, help us to shine in our community. Help us to shine. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.